This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. You don't need to be an Olympic athlete to know that we all love to compete. For a lot of us of a certain age, that means taking in a game up the ballpark or watching sports on television. But there are a few hardy souls well into their golden years still going the distance. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. We're not going to preach the benefits of staying active as you age. There's plenty of that already out in the universe. Instead, we'll just introduce you to Orville Rogers, holder of more than a dozen world records. Oh, and he's 98 years old. What do your friends and family think about you being this active and running this much and that far and that fast at this age? I think they're probably as surprised as I am. <laughs> Outrunning old age, ahead this Sunday morning. Actor Hugh Grant has swooned his way through many a movie wedding and funeral. It turns out that his real life is more complicated, but he's no less suave. Tracy Smith caught up with him in London. 
It's going very, very, very well. In the new movie, Florence Foster Jenkins, Hugh Grant is as smooth as ever. Excellent. How do I look? Wunderbar. But behind the scenes, he was a nervous wreck. Did you go to the set terrified? Yes, yes. What do you think that is? We don't know, Doctor. <laughs> I, I have seen a shrink, but it didn't really work. Have you ever thought about running for office? The Hugh Grant you no, never knew, really. ahead this Sunday morning. In the last five years. Our Connor Knighton is on the trail again. This morning, he's visiting Devil's Hole. Death Valley National Park is home to the lowest place in North America. It's the driest spot in the country and the hottest place on Earth. It's also home to one of the rarest fish in the world, the Devil's Hole pupfish. We actually reached an ultimate low, all-time low, of 35 observable fish in the spring of 2013. We've got fins in low places later on Sunday morning. Andrew Lloyd Webber is a very busy person on Broadway these days, with three hit musicals playing at the same time. He'll tell Mo Rocca all about it. Yes, you're in the School of Rock is the newest original hit Broadway show from composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's not a musical that's going to change the course of the Western musical as we presently know it. But his biggest hit of all, Cats, is back on Broadway. This is the one I wore to Pyle Junior High School every day. Now and forever, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber. Serena Altshul introduces us to the photos of the other Maplethorpe, Edward Maplethorpe. Harry Peterson takes us to tiny Bhutan where archers are aiming high. We'll head off to the races and meet Steve Hartman's namesake horse. Ahead, going like mighty. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Olympics are in full swing this weekend with athletes getting faster and stronger all the time. But as Lee Cowan explains in our cover story, it's not just Olympic athletes who are going the distance. Attention athletes, this is the final call for the... If you're sitting on your couch, maybe after an extra waffle or two, and you haven't worked out in a while, on your mark. this story may make you feel a little inadequate. But it may also inspire you. After all, how could you not be inspired by someone like Dottie Gray? On the day of the race, she was 90. Yep, 90. Says so. Right on her leg. I race about 50 times a year. 50 runs. When we caught up with her, she was competing in the World Senior Games in southern Utah. Over the years, she's more than once ended up being the fastest runner in her age group. Fastest in the world, that is. Sophie Gray got the two goals. Oh, my gosh. She's won so many medals, she jangles. And around almost any track. You're Dottie, aren't you? Yeah, oh, She's a silver-haired celebrity. Keep moving. That's the main thing. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you can always start. You're never too old to start. 
Orville Rogers didn't start running until he was in his 50s. He's now 98, just two years shy of a century, and still works out up to 10 hours a week. What do you consider old? <laughs> Five years older than I am. Yeah, that's old. <laughs> the Outstanding Overall Male Athlete of the Year. Orville has broken 15 world records, shattering them the way most people his age might shatter a hip. To this day, Lee, I'm the only man in the world that has run a 10-minute mile after age 90. Wow. And I'm the only man in the world that's run a 15-minute mile after age 95. I'm bragging, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> you have every reason to brag. God, it's such a massive airplane. Oh, though. yeah. A pilot during World War II who later flew for Braniff Airlines, Orville knows he's been pretty blessed with good genes. But he's not superhuman either. Heart troubles have led to bypass surgery. He even had a stroke not too long ago. But his consistent level of physical activity and his unfailingly positive outlook on life have made Orville a true-life man of steel. I have a determination to hang in there, keep going, Please. never give up. Let's face it, there are perfectly rational reasons to not want to work out when you get older. It hurts, you're worried about falling, maybe you don't have friends around anymore to work out with. And yet, it's pretty hard to argue with the results. You know, I stop there and run down there. Dixon Hemphill is by far the oldest person at George Mason University's Fieldhouse in Virginia. He's 91. Pushing himself to stay active, he says, isn't always fun. <sighs> Sometimes these races that I run, it's not easy. And uh, I feel like quitting when I'm halfway through. But you don't. But I don't, no. <laughs> he was an undefeated pole vaulter in high school, but that was way back in the 1930s. Other than golf and a little tennis, he didn't do much as he got older. Until one day, he went to a track meet. And I tried the mile. I got about halfway through and started walking. Really? And I looked around and saw these other people and figured, well, if they can do it, I can. He hasn't stopped running since. And we wanted to see just what effect that determination has had on his body. His arm is just progressively going to move down. With his doctor's permission, we brought him to the Department of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at George Washington University, where this machine scanned just how much body fat Dixon has been carrying around. In a perfect specimen, what would you see that's different than this? In a perfect specimen? Yeah. You would see this. Your body fat is excellent. Mm -hmm. It's 14%. Wow. That's in the athletic category for a 20-year-old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a 20-year-old. Imagine that. So, it's just amazing you find that out from this, yeah? Okay, okay. whenever you're ready. Loretta DiPietro okay, is professor ready. and chair of the Exercise and Nutrition Department. How you doing? Good. And wanted to give Dixon what's called a VO2 max test. The test, one of the best indicators of physical fitness, measures how efficient his body is at using oxygen. Come on, go, finish this, come on. Doing great. He has to push himself to his breaking point. And remember, he's 91 years old. Okay, give us a sign here. Still okay? Not surprisingly, Dixon scored better than many people 30 years younger. That was outstanding. We can't all be Dixon or Orville or Dottie, for that matter. 
they're all exceptions. I was hoping to compete until I was 90. Well, now I've made that, so I'll go on maybe, hopefully, a few years. But for the rest of us, as we lose muscle mass, the effects of low physical activity are increasingly pronounced. Much of the aging-related decline in physical function is similar to what we observe from astronauts when they come down from extended spaceflight. Like, do your muscles start essentially atrophying and wasting Absol away? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that's really what's happening. Yeah. Di says almost anybody, even as late as their 70s or 80s, can not only cheat old age, but may also substantially reduce their risk of Alzheimer's and dementia by doing something as simple as walking. What we've noticed with two decades of aging research is those people who remain active, their rate of decline is much slower. At the USA Track and Field Indoors Masters Championships in Albuquerque, New Mexico this past March, the best of the oldest came out to prove age is just a number. You ready to go? I don't know. <laughs> Despite that hesitation, Orville and Dixon wouldn't miss this for the world. It's hard not to get excited. Orville's excitement was infectious, as was his performance. In the 1500 meter, he broke another world record. Truth is, he set that record. No one 95 or older has ever raced it. So go all the way around in this way and then cut in there. You got it. Okay. In the 400-meter race for men over 90, it was just Orville and Dixon alone competing. By their last lap, they have the crowd on their feet. Just look at that smile on Orville's face. Dixon, seven years his junior, beat him and was waiting for him at the finish line with a handshake. Still even seem winded. Well, now I'm okay, but, uh, well, I wasn't that winded because it's not that long a distance. Yeah. I can handle that pretty well. What does it feel like when you hear everybody cheering for uh, you? <laughs> can't describe it. Yeah? Ladies and gentlemen, well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. You can't help but be around the two of them and not feel empowered. Can we put them on? Orville and Dixon took the medal stand side by side. Nearly 200 years of life experience between them. For them, there is no finish line, just the next race and their ageless desire to run it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. Today is Purple Heart Appreciation Day. While the Medal of Honor is still the highest military decoration, the Purple Heart is the oldest. This is what it looks like now. But it began like this. The Badge of Military Merit, an extraordinary piece of American history. The Badge of Military Merit is significant because it is the inspiration for the modern Purple Heart. Peter Bedrosian is program director of the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor, New York. The hall has one of only three known original cloth and silk badges of merit, issued and designed by George Washington himself. Let it be known, he ordered, 
that he who wears the military order of the Purple Heart has given of his blood in the defense of his homeland and shall forever be revered by his fellow countrymen. The color of purple is the color of royalty. The purple dye is expensive. The average person couldn't afford a purple garment. And so purple was signified an elevation of your status above those around you. After independence, though, the merit badge was forgotten. But in 1932, on the bicentennial of Washington's birth, General Douglas MacArthur revived it. It would no longer be a stitched patch, but a medal featuring the bust of Washington and his coat of arms, given to service members killed or wounded by enemy action. It's the warrior that's being honored here. What the warrior goes through remains the same. Tony Lassiter is one of those warriors. He served in Vietnam. We were on convoy, and that's when we were ambushed, and uh, uh, two, of my, uh, two of my soldiers were killed. Nearly two million Purple Hearts have been awarded since 1932. Among the recipients, Michael Clemente's father. This is him here. Michael Clemente Jr. brought pictures and paperwork so that his father's name could be added to the Purple Heart honor roll. There's his name and his citations. He was um, in Battle of Bulge and yeah, he was in a lot of battles. As for Tony Lassiter's, he keeps his framed, a reminder of his service and sacrifice. One medal that you don't want to receive because you got to get wounded or killed to receive it. But I mean, it's just special to me. Uh, I mean, you know, every morning when I walk out that door, I mean, there's my medal hanging there. But there's a lot of pain to get that medal. Next, we had lunch, and he was very angry and strongly suggested that I consider changing my name. The other Maplethorpe. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. What's in a name? Serena Altshul now with a tale of two brothers. When you hear the name Maplethorpe, it may be this man who comes to mind. Robert Maplethorpe, a photographer who took pictures like these made headlines with these, and stirred controversy with images, some pornographic, that we can't show you. But you've probably never heard of this Maplethorpe, Robert's younger brother, photographer Edward Maplethorpe. Good girl. I have no interest in being a baby photographer. Right. (laughs) But Edward does take baby pictures. Hundreds of them, in fact. And full disclosure, (laughs) that's my little girl hamming it up for the camera. This is just one part of an extensive range of Edward's work that has had very little exposure. And that has much to do with sibling rivalry. We grew up in a very suburban, middle-class neighborhood in Floral Park, Queens. We had a, a, a great childhood. In the 1980s, Robert Maplethorpe became a prominent figure in a New York City subculture of artists and performers. A recently released HBO documentary called Look at the Pictures tells the story of his life through the eyes of those who knew him best, including Edward, who grew up idolizing his mysterious and exciting older brother. 
I can really say that I was probably his earliest fan because um, he would come home, I would almost get nervous, uh, a nervous feeling in my stomach and wanting to sort of impress him and talk to him. Even at that age, you knew something special. When you behold something I knew there was other... something special about him, but I also knew that there was something within myself that yeah. um, was being sparked, you know, um, a creative side. A spark that sent budding photographer Edward to New York City after graduating college in 1981. With a little push from their mother, Robert gave his brother a job. Edward worked for Robert for two years, but never stopped taking his own pictures. And that's when things started to go wrong. He never took an interest in what I was doing. Never said this is great work. This is great, Edward. No. When their names appeared together on a program for a photography exhibit, Robert drew the line, telling Edward the world had room for only one Maplethorpe. That was one of the worst days of my life. We had lunch and he was very angry and he made it quite clear that um, he wasn't going to be any sort of path to any sort of successful career for me and strongly suggest that I consider changing my name. I thought he had a point. Uh, I always wanted to do it on my own. Um, so I was like, okay, why not? And that's how Edward Maplethorpe disappeared from the art world. Taking his mother's maiden name, he became known professionally as Edward Maxey for the next 20 years. It was the beginning of a downward spiral. I was living out in the West Coast in California, and that's when the drugs started taking hold. And then shortly after that, I heard that Robert was uh, HIV positive. Despite the hardship and the hard feelings, Edward returned to New York to care for Robert as he died. And that's when he hit rock bottom. I went to my doctors in tears and told him that I had no control over my drug use and, uh, you know, my life would either end or end up in jail. Robert died of AIDS in 1989. That same year, Edward kicked his drug habit. Later, he would take back what was rightfully his, the name Maplethorpe. You know, there are a number of pivotal points in one's life, and I can point them out when you realize that you have the, the strength of character to um, do what you need to do to make your life better. And life did get better. In 1997, Edward met and later married art curator Michelle Yun. And at age 54, he became a father. With a new outlook on life, he returned to the darkroom. When I heard it was Edward Maplethorpe, I was like, Edward Maplethorpe? New York City gallery owner Michael Foley has shown Edward's work twice. The work that I showed was purely abstract. In fact, it really didn't involve a camera at all, and it was all created in the darkroom. Using only chemicals, light, and paint, he began to find his creative foothold. It is the ability to go beyond what he thinks is expected of him in photography and what's expected of photography in general. And to go beyond that for him, I think, is really what sets him apart photographically, not only from Robert, 
but other more traditional historic photographers. Vivian, if you look right here, that'd be great. Right, All right. the while, Edward never stopped taking these photos. Charging thousands of dollars per portrait, it's the kind of work that pays the bills. As the years went on, I just became so enamored by it, and it's become one of the most rewarding things that I do in my career right now. And that's why these giggling, drooling, tear-streaked, no-nonsense, dubious little faces are the subject of Edward's first book, called One. Thank you. With a recent book tour and a larger-than-life display in the windows of posh New York City department store Bergdorf Goodman, Edward is experiencing his most public success to date. It's almost like if you had been living and working under the shadow of Robert Maplethorpe, you somehow now are living and working kind of in the light of it. It's shifted. It has shifted. I certainly don't have the name and recognition that my brother does and leaving the legacy, but not everyone has to be a star. As long as you can continue to do good work and live the life as a creative individual, for me anyway, that's okay. Curtain going up on Andrew Lloyd Webber, next. With one look, I can break your heart. With one look, I With one look sung by Glenn Close. It was a showstopper in the 1990s musical Sunset Boulevard. The composer, Andrew Lloyd Webber, whose shows are back on Broadway in a very big way. Here he is with Mo Rocca. I don't know what really makes a, a, a great musical or not. In the end, you write it, and you write it because you want to write it. And if Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber writes it, there's a good chance it'll be a hit. After all, this is a man with three shows simultaneously running on Broadway. Phantom of the Opera. Turn your face away from the garish light. School of Rock and the brand new revival of Cats. The newest of these, School of Rock, based on the Jack Black movie about a washed-up musician who teaches a bunch of prep schoolers to unleash their inner Zeppelin, opened in December. It's not a musical that's going to change the course of the Western musical as we presently know it. I mean, but hopefully you take something away from it. And I mean, it's got some, you know, catchy songs. In fact, Lloyd Webber received some of the best reviews of his career for School of Rock. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. The show isn't entirely new territory for him. Early on, he and lyricist Tim Rice teamed up for one of the first ever rock musicals, Jesus Christ Superstar. This song from the 1971 show so popular, 
two versions of it landed on the charts at the same time. That was a song that I always thought. It was a melody that could take a story. You see, I mean, I mean, I mean, it way it, it has a progression and a movement, you see. So I mean, da 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 da. Telling stories with music started early for Lloyd Webber. And then, you know. Raised in a family of musicians, his father was director of the London College of Music, the future impresario fashioned a miniature stage from a record player. Were your musical tastes typical? Uh, no. I mean, my love of musical theatre was certainly not typical. I mean, it, it was considered to be very, very abnormal, in fact. <laughs> it may sound amazing uh, to people today, um, but Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, were considered by how can I put it, the, you know, the sort of opinion-making class, yeah, the tastemakers and everything, to be off the scale as sentimental, you know. I remember once saying at a dinner when I was very little and there were frightfully grand people that said, you know, I like Carousel, and what? You know. After dropping out of the Royal College of Music, Lloyd Webber began collaborating with Tim Rice while still in his teens. The pair returned to Broadway post-superstar with Evita, a musical about Ava Perone, the wife of Argentina's general-turned-president. It's a dramatic moment finding a, a, an anthem that could turn on her. Yeah. All through my wild days, my mad existence. Because you see, that can be played in complete triumph, you know. Evita was a hit. But Cats, based on the poems of T.S. Eliot and Lloyd Webber's first musical without rice, was a mega hit. I played the cast album of Cats so many times my brother almost killed me. And he would come into my room and he'd say, he'd say I'm sick of hearing about the Jellicle Cats. You know what Jellicle Cats are, do you? And I actually dogs. don't. What are Jellicle well, Cats? Well, Jellicle Cats are a corruption of, of what the English sort of posh upper class say. Dear little cats. Oh. So dear little cats become Jellicle Cats. Oh, dear little cats. And, and if you were in Downton Abbey, you would say, dear little cats. Oh, so dear little cats, da, dear yes. little cats. Jellicle songs for Jellicle Cats. Jellicle songs for Jellicle Cats. Are you a cat person? Yes, absolutely. How many do you have? Well, at the moment I have four. Yeah, all Turkish van cats. Turkish van? What's yep. a van cat? A van cat is a swimming cat. Are they going to your swimming pool? Yes, absolutely. Are they friendly? Very friendly. They're very friendly, but they're also extremely strong-willed. With Cats and then Phantom of the Opera, Lloyd Webber became famous beyond the world of musical theater. I was asked if I would play the role of Amadeus in the movie of that name. You were asked and to play I, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Yes, and I turned it down. And it was, uh, it was one of those things. The more I said no, the more they thought it was a great idea. I said, look, I am really flattered, but there is an issue. If I play the role, it's got to be my music, not Mozart's. <laughs> I thought this might get rid of them. Well, one of them said, actually, it's a rather good idea. And I oh, no, no, please free me. Lloyd Webber seems keenly aware of his own limits. He writes the music, but not the words to his shows. 
Why haven't you written lyrics in your shows? Because I can't. Have you tried? Um, when I was a kid, I tried, and I soon learned that this was not a skill that I really wouldn't... I mean, writing lyrics is something which is very specific. And, and the great lyric writers, I mean, you know, they have a turn of phrase and a way of, uh, of writing that I simply couldn't get near. And not all of his shows have been smash hits on Broadway. What was up with the musical where everybody was on roller skates pretending they were trains? Oh, that was fun, great fun. Um, it was a very stupid idea to bring it here in the form that it was. I hugely opposed it. It's still running in Germany and places like It's written for kids, entirely written for kids. But don't cry for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's got an Oscar, three Grammys, and seven Tonys. And Phantom of the Opera is the longest-running Broadway show ever. I know that a lot of British people don't like to talk about money, but I'm not British, so I have to ask. By some measure, you're the richest man in all of pop music. I very much doubt that. I think you are. You've no, got like a I, billion I, dollars. I, I, I've done extremely well, but I think you might find that the composer and the lyricist of The Lion King were rather ahead of what really? of me. Yeah, I think so. You think that Elton John has more money than you? Oh, yeah. You do not. No, there's no. Well, money. he goes out for a few million dollars a concert, so for a start. Uh, yeah, but you got to, like, a billion is a thousand Listen, million. It really doesn't matter. The main, most important thing with money is to use it. That's why I, I have my foundation. But I can assure you that I am nowhere near the top of the tree when it comes to the rich Brits in music. We stand corrected. Andrew Lloyd Webber is number two, just behind Sir Paul McCartney on the list of rich Brits in music. So he's doing just fine. We've come to the part of the interview where we sum up your life. How would you describe it? Well, I think I'm the luckiest man alive, really, because I've been able to do the one thing in my life that I really love, and I'm still doing it, and I don't intend to stop. Coming up, loss of innocence. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It was 50 years ago this past week that television allowed Americans to witness something that in years since has become all too commonplace. Anna Werner has a tale of loss of innocence. It's a summer day in Austin as students at the University of Texas stroll the campus. A day much like the one 50 years ago, long before anyone knew the term mass shooting. This is where yeah, you were lying. Yeah. And it's the day and the spot Claire Wilson James will never forget. So as you lay here, you can see the tower oh, yeah. right over you. That day was August 1st, 1966. Walter Cronkite anchored a special CBS News report. A deranged engineering student at the University of Texas climbed to an Austin landmark at noon today. A man perched atop the University of Texas clock tower began firing on the people below. Victims were cut down on the west and south sides of the campus as the sniper zeroed in on his targets with unerring accuracy. He shot at random for more than 90 minutes. Claire, an 18-year-old student, eight months pregnant, was walking on campus with her boyfriend, Tom Ekman. At first, she didn't know what was happening. 
So you never heard the shot? No, I never heard a shot. I just felt like I a big jolt, and then I started falling. As she fell to the pavement, her boyfriend Tom turned to ask her what was wrong. The next thing she knew, he was lying dead next to her, and she couldn't move. You thought you were dead? I thought I, I was going to die, yeah. The killer was 25-year-old Charles Joseph Whitman, a former Marine sharpshooter. Unknown to anyone, he had already killed his wife and mother in their homes before heading to the tower's 28th floor observation deck with multiple guns. It was the first school mass shooting in modern U.S. history. He affected so many lives in that one day. Retired Texas Ranger Ray Martinez was a young officer with the Austin Police Department at the time. Arriving on campus, he couldn't believe what he saw. When I got out of the car, I could hear all of this shooting going on. It was all like a war. Back then, there was no such thing as rapid response teams. It was left to Martinez and a civilian followed by a fellow officer, Houston McCoy, to climb to the top of the tower to face off against the sniper and his arsenal. As Martinez described it at the time... When he was swinging it, he didn't have it uh, leveled at me. He was trying to bring it down, and I just kept firing. And I could tell by impact, you know, that I hit him. And I kept advancing, shooting. McCoy shot and hit him. And... uh, He started going down. The shooter was dead. He killed 16 people that day and injured dozens more. The mass shooting brought fundamental changes to police departments and led to the creation of SWAT teams used around the country. For decades at UT, the only reminder of that terrible day could be found on this rock. Keith Maitland, who went to school there, wondered why he never heard more. This is a story I think that anybody who grew up here has heard a little bit about. But if you want to get past just that little bit, there isn't really a lot out there to kind of fill in the blanks. So he made a documentary called Tower. We can see the movement under the clock on the south side of the University of Texas Tower. It uses animation and archival footage to tell the story of that day. The shot that hit me bypassed me and ricocheted off the building. Everybody was in a state of panic. Then what happened? Then everybody ran. What I wanted to understand is what was it like to live through something like this and how would it impact you? How does it impact a community? The worst days of your lives are... In the process, he wound up reconnecting people who, as it turned out, had not seen each other since that day 50 years ago. People like Claire Wilson-James... Hi, Claire. Hello, baby. ...and Artley Snuff. Snuff was just a teenager at the time. That's him on the right in the dark shirt, running out in full view of the sniper to pick Claire up and carry her some 100 yards down the steps to safety, something he says he simply felt he had to do. Because she was shot. And she was obviously pregnant. It was the most horrific day of my life. To this day? Oh, gosh, yes. I didn't go to war. That was my war. 
Because why? The blood, the death, the horror, the, um... The loss of innocence. I think what I probably learned the most is that you have to deal with trauma. Um, and for people who, who didn't give themselves an opportunity or weren't given an opportunity, it really sits with them and, and kind of eats away at them over the course of the rest of their lives. And he had... Even people you might not expect, like Ray Martinez, who, before he was a police officer, was a combat medic. He told us on his way to the tower to stop the sniper that day, he was forced to run past Claire as she lay bleeding on the quad without stopping to help her. That day, I was thinking like a medic, but I was also thinking like a policeman. I saw her wounded. And I felt like it was my duty to grab her and take her out of there. In the movie version of this, you're the guy that shoots the sniper and saves the day. And you're telling me that even you are racked by guilt? Well, if you're a human being and you got feelings for people, yes. The university is now taking steps to remember those lost. This past week, a new, larger memorial was dedicated, listing the names of those killed, including Claire Wilson James's boyfriend and also her unborn baby. And in the shadow of the tower, there is now friendship and healing for survivors. And from Claire, something else. And you forgive him. Oh, yeah, how could... God's forgiven me everything I've done, and he's kept me from being that kind of person, you know, that decided to go that way. I mean, how could I not forgive him? I mean, he's, he was just a really mixed-up kid. The one is Steve Hartman, known by Brian Carsey. Just ahead... Horsing around with Steve Hartman. Fourth, it's Steve Hartman. We're off to the races now with our Steve Hartman. How many 24 hours? For as long as her parents can remember, 11 year old Brianna Carsey has had this crazy dream. She has always wanted a brood mare, a mommy horse, that would give birth to a baby horse that would grow up to become a racing champion. Absolutely. This was a fairy tale for her from day one. We put it off for five years almost because we don't have a farm. So we got to go rent stalls somewhere. This sounds expensive. Yeah. Why don't you say no? Well, as she'll tell you, she has me wrapped around her finger. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> her foal was born in the spring of 2013. She named it MJB Got Faith for the faith she instantly had in him. I really loved him. He's super soft, too. But that quick bond posed a real problem for this pushover dad. Come here, bud. See, for whatever reason, Brian thought once he explained to his daughter that her horse could never race, that it was a runt from poor breeding stock, she would just agree to sell it. She's like, there's no price, daddy. So I'm talking to my wife. It's like, you know, we really got ourselves in a mess here. Yeah. And I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So we stake him to the races. This horse that doesn't belong in the races. The horse that I thought we should have gotten rid of already. Brian was stuck, committed to boarding and training this long shot to end all long shots. Yep. And this is not a wealthy family. 
Brian runs a small logistics company, and Ohio Racing, which is harness-style racing, is a $900 million a year industry. I want to see him go fast. MJB got faith was so slow he barely even qualified to compete. But then somehow, someway, won his first race. His second, third, and fourth. Qualifying him for the state championship held in Columbus, Ohio. And I said, baby, if you finish third, you should be so thankful. She goes, Daddy, if he finishes last, I'm going to be thankful. But he's going to win. <laughs> and so it was that this little horse with no pedigree, this pet with no reason for being here beyond the blind faith of a little girl, won an Ohio Sire Stakes Championship. She said, Dad, I told you, you got to have faith. Brianna took home $100,000 that day. She gave half to charity and plans to put the other half toward buying a farm. I just want to have a farm and be able to go walk out my back door and see him. Since we first told this story last year, things have only gotten better for Brianna. She got a National Horse Racing Award, and book and movie deals are in the works. Interestingly, her dad now has a racehorse, which he gave a most unusual name. The one is Steve Hartman, known by Brian Carsey. Perhaps because of that poor choice, Brian has yet to win a single race. Fourth, it's Steve Hartman. Hopefully, his daughter will let him live on her farm. Are you a perfectionist? Yeah, yes. Coming up, Tracy Smith talks with actor Hugh Grant. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I was standing there in the church, and for the first time in my whole life, I realized I totally and utterly loved one person. And it wasn't the person standing next to me in the veil, it's the person standing opposite me now. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. That's one of Hugh Grant's memorable moments from the 1994 comedy Four Weddings and a Funeral. Grant has been in countless films since, and has a new one opening on summer screens. He spoke with our Tracy Smith in London. Singing at Carnegie Hall is her dream. And I'm going to give it to her. There are few leading men more charming than Hugh Grant. Natalie. Or, by his own admission, more difficult to work with. Are you a perfectionist? Yeah, yes. I've driven uh, people mad on films that I've made. Uh, I want more takes. I want to try new lines. Then I want to interfere in the editing process, and I want to interfere in the advertising process. Everything, everything. Pretty much Barbara Streisand in trousers, I am. <laughs> it's going very, very, very well. His latest film is the true story of Florence Foster Jenkins. Meryl Streep is the tone-deaf diva who lived to sing. And he's St. Clair Bayfield, her loyal enabler. Excellent. How do I look? Wunderbar. Why did you choose Florence Foster Jenkins? It was quite uh, complex as a role, and, uh, and it had Meryl Streep. And I thought I would be no kind of man if I didn't say yes. And the idea of working with Meryl Streep was? 
Well, uh, may, partly, of course, exciting and partly intimidating, but mainly intimidating. Intimidated or not, he's elegant, witty, and lovable. Kind of like the Hugh Grant you always thought you knew. Born in London, young Hugh Grant dreamed of a career on the soccer field. But after graduating Oxford, he was talked into trying his hand at acting. Here we go. And this is how most of America met him. 1994's Four Weddings and a Funeral. My job today is to talk about Angus, and uh, there are no skeletons in his cupboard. Or so I thought. At the time, Grant was still looking for his big break, and he didn't think this was it. When the film was rough cut together, the producers and everyone sat together and watched the film and agreed it was the worst thing ever perpetrated in the history of cinema. There was no laughs, it was just awful. No. And I felt the same, and we all wanted to emigrate before the film came out. <laughs> How wrong they all were. Four Weddings was a hit. Grant won a Golden Globe and a spot on the A-list. And so I did. I rode that wave for a bit. Then comes summer of 1995, and there was a bit of a bump in the road. Yeah, it was a hiccup. A I hiccup. Agree. Yes. That hiccup, you may recall, was an arrest in Los Angeles for lewd behavior with a 25-year-old prostitute who called herself Divine Brown. It all happened just before a promotional tour for the movie Nine Months, and the news overwhelmed every newsstand. Let me start with question number one. And talk show. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> well, I was, I was very naughty. I was very drunk. And, um, yeah, it was regrettable. Do you think that the press covered that incident, the Divine Brown incident, I guess we call it, fairly? Yeah, I, I, I was entirely to be expected um, that there would be a huge uh, hullabaloo about that, particularly given this rather absurd persona that I had been given about who I was. Which on, was? On the, well, on the back of Four Weddings. I, people thought I was this nice character I played in that film. And so I suppose the contrast between that person and this seedy behavior was, was juicy stuff. And I, I quite understand why it was a big story. What's interesting is, did your career take a hit? Uh, well, no, not, not particularly. Because as you know, as well as anyone, Hollywood only minds about money. And uh, that film did fine, the film that was coming out at the time. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's all that really matters. As long as you make them money, they don't care what you get up to. Hi. And he's made his share of money. 1999's Notting Hill was, at that time, the most successful British film ever to land on U.S. shores. I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. So what next? I don't know. I'm torturing someone at the moment about a film. Uh, I like to do that for a very long time, like a cat with a half-dead mouse. And then, <laughs> and usually I walk away at the end and say, I'm not going to do it. That's just part of your process. I find it hard to sign on the dotted line sometimes. Some might read into this a fear of commitment in general. Is that fair? Well, yeah, I think it is fair. But it's not just commitment. Uh, permanence scares me. I don't know why. Is that marriage too? Does marriage scare you? I have known a few good marriages, but very few. The others look to me like they're pretty miserable. I don't think that's a recipe for happiness. 
The never-married Grant has four children from two relationships. And you might say he has another baby. This is an office full of very brave uh, people doing For the past five years, Hugh Grant has been the public face of Hacked Off, a lobbying group founded in the wake of the British phone hacking scandal. Here, they scour the tabloids looking for intrusive media coverage, not of celebrities like him, but of ordinary people like crime victims who are often hounded by the British press. Does this occupy more of your time now than filmmaking? Much more. Much more. Much yeah, more. Yeah. And are you content that way? I feel uh, more satisfied. It's, uh, it's strangely bracing not to have people uh, kissing my butt. And it's strangely bracing to be uh, on big BBC news programmes confronted by quite scary interviewers uh, and having to keep your end up and keep your wits about you. I say bracing, it's utterly terrifying. One of his group's goals is to help shape legislation in Parliament, so Hugh Grant has spent a lot of time here, in and around the seat of government. Have you ever thought about running for office? No, not really. There were moments in the last five years when I realised that they have quite a lot of fun. But in the end, I think it would drive you mad. I'm not sure you can achieve enough. Um, it's all about compromise. Well, you've seen House of Cards. Of course, he's played his share of politicians, most notably as the dancing prime minister in 2003's Love Actually. You didn't want to dance? I dreaded the dance scene in Love Actually more than having my teeth extracted. It could have been the mood for dancing. Yeah. It takes me um, quite a lot of vodka before I really want to. Or if I'm alone at home with no one around, I like a bit of a dance sometimes in my pants. <laughs> you mean like risky business style? Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> hey, Mr. Bayfield, I want to see you dance. And at 55, he's at it again, trying to do it better this time. He's built his career thinking that way. When I finished my degree at Oxford, I went and acted for a bit, and I was appalling. And uh, with each part, I thought, well, that's embarrassing. I better do one more to show people I'm not that bad. And in fact, instead of taking a year, that's gone on for 35 years. <laughs> and do you still have that feeling, I better do one more? Well, I, sometimes I think that's enough, and then there's always something that comes up. And with Hugh Grant, it seems even the missteps can be charming. The bow and arrow, an ancient weapon that's as modern as today, particularly in one corner of the world where archers are still aiming high. Barry Peterson takes us there. We have our baseball in Bhutan. The national pastime and passion is archery. Competitions bring villages together across this nation tucked into the Himalayas and attract everyone from peasant to prince. American and Oxford-educated Prince Dasho Jigyal is a regular at tournaments. Why is archery important in Bhutan's culture? Archery has played um, a very important part in building nationalism and also building a national identity through sport. And Prince Dasho is there with pointers for the royal visit by that other prince and princess, William and Kate. 
she took aim in the spirit of friendship. Certainly friendlier than in the 1860s when British redcoats were kept at bay by Bhutan's long-range archers, as they did for centuries against other invaders. Bhutanese archers today still show their stuff, hitting targets 476 feet away. And like school teacher Sonam Dorji, competing at this local tournament, still proud of doing it the old-fashioned way with traditional bamboo bow and arrows. This one is a very special one. Bamboo name is called Yanka. The Yanka is the type of bamboo. Uh, almost similar, but uh, quality-wise, this Yanka costs the most. Of course, at the Olympics, Bhutan's hopefuls will be wielding competition-approved high-tech carbon fiber bows and arrows and shoot at targets half as far as they're used to. 26-year-old Karma won a handful of medals in an Asian competition and is thrilled to compete in Rio. Being in the Olympics is a very, very big deal. It makes Bhutan proud. She carried her nation's flag at Friday night's opening ceremonies. Tuesday, she starts competing. And even though no Bhutanese archer has ever won an Olympic medal, Prince Dasho, who heads its Olympic committee, has faith that karma is a fighting chance at glory. It's in our blood. It's in our blood. Therefore, we hope that we can perform at the international scene. It might run in our genes, in our, in our DNA. Still to come... When we walk down here, just be careful of your footing. On the trail at Devil's Hole. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Devil's Hole sounds like a scary place, but it's really a sanctuary on the trail, as Connor Knighton shows us. Death Valley is the largest national park in the lower 48 United States. It protects more than 3.3 million acres along the California-Nevada border. But look closely at a map, and you'll notice there are 40 additional acres, 60 miles from everything else. Far down this lonely gravel road, you'll find this extra piece of the park. They call it Devil's Hole. A trip to Devil's Hole feels like you've discovered a supervillain's lair. It is in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by this imposing barbed wire fence. There are security cameras and wind speed monitors, all for a hole in the ground. If something seems a little fishy, well, that's because it is. The Devil's Hole pupfish became one of the first listed species to the Endangered Species Preservation Act in 1967, which became the Endangered Species Act. The Devil's Hole pupfish is one of the rarest fish in the world, and this hole in the desert is the only place you can find it. It's actually considered the smallest habitat known for a vertebrate species in the world. So it's about 10 feet in width and about 60 feet in length, and they use about the top 20 feet where algae grows and the food's available. Kevin Wilson is an aquatic ecologist in the driest place in North America. When we walk down here, just be careful of your footing. But thousands of years ago, this whole region was covered in water. And that's likely how the pupfish arrived at Devil's Hole. 
it's still we're still trying to figure it out. It still has us asking questions and thinking of, you know, why and how. So it's it's a it's a special place. It gets me up in the morning and coming to work. This morning is especially exciting. It's fish counting day. I got the ocean analyzer all calibrated for you guys. Twice a year, a group of divers spends a weekend heading into the hole to count. Did you bring your special flashlight today? The fish are in constant danger of extinction. We actually reached an ultimate low, all-time low, of 35 observable fish in the spring of 2013. While most of the fish can be counted from the surface, for the cave divers, it's a risky endeavor. In the 1960s, two teenagers died while exploring Devil's Hole. Their bodies were never recovered. Nobody actually knows how deep this hole goes. We know that divers uh, have been down to 436 feet. They did not see a bottom. Devil's Hole is an aquifer. The 93-degree water here runs underneath this entire region, which pits farmers in search of water against environmentalists fighting for pupfish survival. And it was a private company that drilled a well, and as soon as they turned on the well, the water in Devil's Hole started to decline, and so did the population. So conservationists, there was a federal government task force, really raised the alarm. It was a landmark case that went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1976, the farmers versus the fish. When the fish won and the pumping was regulated, it led to a lot of resentment. There are people that are really anti-pupfish because it does regulate water rights and development in the area, and people have threatened saying, let's just throw a couple of bottles of bleach in here. Oh, so no. <laughs> we do have to be careful. Hence the barbed wire and the cameras. Not long after my visit, surveillance video captured three locals breaking in to skinny dip. Beer and vomit were found in the water. Fortunately, only one pupfish was killed. It could have been a lot worse, which is why there's a second devil's hole. In case they go extinct in the wild, we've got our backup right here. Luke Oliver is part of a team of researchers raising the pupfish in captivity in a building just a mile from their natural habitat. There's cattails growing in there, plenty of algae. The facility was designed to replicate the conditions of devil's hole and cost $4.5 million, which may seem like a lot of money to save a tiny little fish. For Kevin Wilson, the pupfish are just as important as the bald eagle. They're a beautiful fish. They're very inquisitive. Whenever we enter the water to go diving, there are fish that will come up to us and swim in front of our mask. And so we can learn from this species. In a region so inhospitable to life, they named it Death Valley. These tiny fish are still managing to survive. And next week here on Sunday Morning. By design, from the Vanderbilt Cottage at Newport, Rhode Island. Some cottage. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. 
If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.